This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by the Felder Report. Uh, each week I go through a ton of reading and research, uh, charts, and uh, what I do is on Saturday mornings I send out a free email report where I just pick out just a handful of these things, the few things that I found most valuable during my week's worth of reading and research that can be maybe a link, a chart, usually it's just uh, you know four or five things. Uh, if this is something that you'd be interested in receiving, just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the homepage, you can sign up and be good to go. My guest for this episode is Fred Hickey. Uh, Fred has been writing the High Tech Strategist newsletter for over 30 years now. He was also a member of the Barron's Roundtable for a long period of time, among uh, numerous other accomplishments. But I really wanted to talk with Fred because he, more than anybody else I've met, has his finger on the pulse of the technology industry. He just does so much more research that is technology-specific, semiconductors and software, and knows these companies so well that uh, I really wanted to delve into his process, his research process. What is it that gives him this uh, massive competitive advantage in the technology sector? Fred also shares his experience of meeting the legend Sir John Templeton near the peak of the dot-com mania and what he learned from that uh, interaction. We also talk about everything from why he was forced to incorporate a global macro uh, approach uh, into his investing process and why he spends more time in Costa Rica these days than in New Hampshire. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Fred Hickey. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Fred Hickey, welcome to the show. It's really an honor to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I, you're somebody that I've been reading for a long time. I've really wanted to have you on on the show for a while to have this opportunity to pick your brain. When I think of the name Fred Hickey, uh, first thing I think of is the circle of competence concept. Um, you know that Warren Buffett has talked about, and, mm-hmm. and you have such a, a depth of knowledge and experience in the world of technology that it gives you a real competitive advantage uh, in the markets. Um, you didn't. You didn't start on Wall Street. How, you know, where did you really develop this this kind of interest in technology and expertise? Well, I started by by luck, I guess. I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, which was uh, right in the heart of the mini computer. Um, that went on. Uh, well, they were the leaders. Many computers at the time were in the leaders in the late 70s. And so Wang Labs was uh, was located in Lowell, Massachusetts. Prime Computer, you might remember some of these names. Prime Computer was nearby. Digital Equipment was nearby. Computer Vision was nearby. All of those companies, some microsystems, uh, big operations nearby. Um, all of these companies had um, 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 local presences or corporate headquarters, and the stocks were doing very well. Uh, I had had an interest in the stock market because my father did. He was uh, uh, a retail punter, uh, and so I learned a little bit from him. And then I said, if I ever had any money, which I didn't at the time when I was just getting out of school, I went to University of Notre Dame. Uh, and um, when I got out of school, I said, if I haven't had any money, I'll invest in some of these stocks. It looks like they're, they're great. And I was lucky enough to invest. I think I bought 10 shares of Wang Labs and 15 shares of Prime Computer. So we're talking hundreds of dollars. And uh, Wang and Prime were 
two of the best performing stocks that particular year in 1979. Uh, it was just a lucky, lucky being in the right place at the right time. And over time, I found out that it wasn't that simple. Uh, I think Wang tripled and Prime had quadrupled in a year. And uh, it wasn't so simple, but uh, certainly I was hooked at that time. Um, I went to work uh, in industry. I worked there for a dozen years, 10 years with one of the largest telecom companies in the world. Uh, it was General Telephone Electronics, which was electronics as well as telecommunications. And I had I started there as an auditor, internal auditor, an EDP auditor, which was a computer auditor, used to audit the uh, there are data, data centers, basically, um, as well as doing a lot of forensic accounting. So I, so I had a business background, accounting. Uh, I understood balance sheets and P&Ls and cash flow statements, but I also had that uh, electronic exposure. And I worked at GTE for 10 years. The last progressed along the last job controller of uh, a, a, a fairly significant size printed circuit board facility and also had a clean room. So I had a lot of exposure there to the technology world. And I continued my hobby. I did this at night and the weekend. I continued a hobby of investing. And um, at one point, I ended up in corporate headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut, at GTE's corporate headquarters. And I looked into working on Wall Street because love the tech world. And uh, I actually did interview a little bit there, but I found out because I had, had done so well, I was continued to be a high potential employee at GTE, I had done so well that uh, I would have had to take a step down and pay grade, and my wife really didn't like the New York area. She said at that time, and we're talking mid-80s now, she said, I think you'll be able to do it on your own sometime. And in 1987, of all years, uh, she bought me a computer and uh, bought me a printer, and I think it was a 40-pound portable and from Visual Technology. And uh, she bought that, uh, pooled all the Christmas money and bought these things and said, why don't you start writing a newsletter because you have all these people who have started following you. I had successes, continued success in investing in tech stocks, and I was being transferred from location to location. I had this little following of friends and family that wanted to know what I was doing. So I started it. I wrote it for five years just to friends and family. And I was working on weekends all the time. And I would be in, I'd be in a library in Lowell, Massachusetts, as the only Caucasian in there, um, going through electronic magazines and computer magazines, trade magazines. And I continued to have success uh, doing this jointly at uh, both writing this newsletter and working at GTE. Uh, the GTE people didn't mind because it gave me a competitive edge as an analyst, uh, or as very, I had a lot of different tasks there. Um, they would bring me in, and and uh, I knew I knew a lot about the industry uh, that other people didn't know, and uh, so I was kind of an expert jack of all trades. They had so they didn't mind it at all. In fact, so some of them started getting my letter. Some of the GTE people started getting a letter. I think I was charging five dollars a year at the time. Um, I had done so well, um, my big score came in, uh, well, I, was, I started that in 1987, and, and uh, I, I thankfully uh, knew the market was overvalued and, and uh, had sold down positions uh, before the crash and then told people to buy heavily the tech stocks because they were overvalued, and I didn't think that the, uh, the economy was that bad as people had, had, had thought. 
And so I told people, I think it was at that point where I told, I, I told people that they should be selling their kids clothes. It was such an opportunity. But the better opportunity actually came in 1990 when the bear market for technology stocks kind of peaked. And there were all kinds of tech stocks that were selling at cash value or below. Um, they had no debt. They, had, they were you know, number one in their field. Um, you know, software publishing was the name. They had Harvard Graphics. They were selling at cash value and there was no value given at all to the number one position in graphic software. Uh, Ashton Tate, there's a whole bunch of them that I own. And at that point, I told people in October 1990 to sell the, don't sell the kids clothes, sell the kids. Uh, so that, I thought that was a great opportunity. I made a big score then, so big that it was, uh, it, I started looking at writing the newsletter on my own, just going out and doing it on my own. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't, I, I had two young kids. I was uh, a newborn and um, a newborn and a two-year-old. Uh, but I'd had no mortgage. I had had some financial success, and I could take that chance. And the worst, worst thing that would happen to me was I could always go back to my old job or another job in the in industry. So I did that. I went. I, I started to do that. And before I even got started on my own, I got a call from someone who read the newsletter that wasn't part of our friends and family. It started to spread a little bit. And it was a CFO of a, of a technology company, and he had passed my newsletter on to a brokerage firm in Boston, a boutique brokerage firm um, that uh, was called Fector Detweiler. It still exists today as a technology uh, boutique. And they asked me in to, uh, to be uh, potentially to be an analyst. They had read my newsletter. They wanted me to be a technology analyst for them. I said, hey. I'll get paid for what I was going to do on my own anyways. That sounds like fun. So I did that. I went to Boston um, for a few months, and uh, it was fun. It was exciting. Uh, the only problem was was that the research I thought I was going to be able to do there, I wasn't doing because they had various uh, disciplines within the firm, uh, and the investment bankers were taking me around to try to sell deals, and the uh, the the uh, institutional salespeople were, were taking me around to all the big institutions in New York and into Boston and selling me in order to get more sales. And then the retail brokerage people wanted me all the time. And I found out at the end of the day, I hadn't even opened the Wall Street Journal, never mind doing any, any kind of research. So I didn't stay long there. But what that had done was introduce me to all of those people on Wall Street that, had, that I had met in Boston and New York just after a couple of months. And many of those then decided to become subscribers. And then it just kind of took off from there. And I fortunately have never had to advertise in any way in the 31 years that I've been writing the letter. So I guess that gives you some background. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned during that time, that short time you were an analyst, you actually didn't get to do any analysis. And, you know, right. Classic, classic. I was, the longer I stayed there, the dumber I was going to be, I figured out. <laughs> right. Uh, and that, ju that just brings me uh, to my next question, which is what do you, what does your research process look like today? What is your, your routine? You have a daily routine, a quarterly routine. What does, what does that look like? How do you maintain this kind of expertise in the market? Right. I'm glad my wife can't hear because she gets very upset about this. It's all day long. <laughs> um, this uh, technology world is a fast-moving world. It's very difficult to keep up with, you know. And um, so uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, I have developed a lot of contacts. Have you been doing it as long as I have? And I've been investing for 40 years and writing a letter for 31. And 
Uh, you develop a lot of contacts, so I end up with phone calls, lots of phone calls, uh, email exchanges with people in you know in the industry, people I really respect um, in both the tech world as well as the financial world. So I'll be dealing with a lot of phone calls, email messages, and that kind of thing. Um, obviously, I read the, the papers, the, the important papers like the Wall Street Journal, those kinds of things. Um, I used to get piles and stacks of of trade journals. When I stopped going to the library, I had some of my technology friends just give me all of their mag trade magazines, and that would be Electronic Engineering Times and PC Week and Computer World and Info World and on and on and on and on. Um, now I get all that, obviously, via the computer, and there's no paper involved. So I'm online all the time going through all of these trade magazines. Uh, also websites uh, in Asia, Nikkei Asia, the uh, Taipei Times, uh, Digitimes, DRAM Exchange, um, just, to, just as uh, some examples. Um, so I, it, I, I have a whole bunch of bookmarked websites, hundreds of them, I guess. And as a, a group I go through every, uh, I mean, there's a pattern of things I go through every, every day mostly seven days a week. And um, uh, on quarterlies, I spend a heck of a lot of time. That's my busiest time is uh, in the quarterly earnings reports where I, I probably go through 100 or more reading transcripts or actually listening to the conference calls uh, of technology firms and um, as well as probably a dozen or so now mining firms um, because I've been involved in, in, in the precious metals too. We can get into that later. But um, uh, so a lot of work going through conference calls, going obviously going through all the financial reports, all the balance sheets, all the cash flow statements, you name it. Um, and that uh, takes up all my time. <laughs> it sounds like it. And, you know, and all of that is really kind of an effort to keep your finger on the pulse of the industry, kind of just uh, understand, you know, trends and, and how they're, you know, things are waxing and waning and that, and that sort of thing. Yes, because you it's a fast-moving market, and obviously technology is constantly changing, and the companies that I was dealing with, almost all of them, 30 years ago, don't exist today, uh, and they're all new names. Um, uh, it's funny, I, I, one thing I've done for 40 years, I started doing that in 1979, and I continue to do it, is every, I have notebooks um, of uh, paper, no, paper full of notebooks while I will going through a, a mechanical process of every week um, going through about 100 names, 100 stocks, 80-something of them tech names and, and about a dozen uh, gold mining names. And I'll go through them and uh, write down the what went on in the week, if there are any reports, little notes, uh, the volume, the highs and lows, uh, where the close was, uh, earnings numbers, uh, all of that kind of stuff by hand. And so I have these files that go back. And some of this data now doesn't exist anymore <laughs> anywhere other than my paper file. But I do it. I, I can do this stuff online. I do everything else online. But I really like the, 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 the forced act of thinking about each one of these companies every weekend and think about each one of them. And that's just something that I do, too. Well, and, and through that process, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not just keeping your finger on the pulse of things. It's, well, you know, what is really your bread and butter trade? What, what are, I mean, you mentioned right. the setup in the, in the late, late 1990, you know, but uh, what, yeah, what do you consider as your, your kind of your sweet spot? Right. So I'm a value investor. Um, I'm a fundamentalist. 
and not so much of a chartist. Uh, in fact, I'm not a chartist at all. I understand. Uh, uh, you know, I understand some technical parts of it, just and, and I do look at it. But uh, basically, I try to do. I try to buy low and sell high. <laughs> and um, uh, so, uh, and that's what I've done over over time. It, it sometimes sometimes becomes difficult in in bull and bubble markets as we've had. In recent years, uh, because there, as as it is right now in the technology world, there's very little that's that's of value. So I'm a fundamentalist uh, investor. Uh, I'm looking to find things of value. Uh, I'm looking to find things that are overlooked. And so, if there's changes in the technology world where something might be going their way, for example, um, we have a shift going on between Intel and AMD potentially. Uh, where AM, where Intel has uh, has stumbled at, on their next generation process, uh, where they were supposed to be going to 0.7 nano, uh, and uh, AMD is there through their partnership with Taiwan Semiconductor, and it looks like AMD is going to have uh, a chance to gain a significant amount of market share from Intel uh, over the, at least the next year or two. Uh, so you try to get ahead of the game. Now, I did buy in AMD uh, back a few years ago when when they had the Optron opportunity. Um, but because the market currently is in such bubble territory, um, the only way I'm playing this on this side is on the short side through put options of Intel. So this that's the kind of thing. I'm looking for change. Uh, I'm looking for shifts. I'm looking for, for example, in the smartphone industry, which is the most important and market for semiconductors. I'm looking for things going on there, and so you watch. I watch the uh, the, the the saturation and maturization of the smartphone industry, where we went from high double digit growth rates to slow double digit growth rates. Now, to for the last three quarters, negative year over year declines. Well, there's an opportunity there on the short side. It creates all kinds of problems when the industry has gone from from those kinds of growth rates to to now um, PC-like, uh, st- either stagnation or worse, especially if we have an economic downturn. So um, and that's the other thing I didn't point out. I also have to. Tr- I also believe that I have to keep up with uh, the macro world. And every newsletter, I'll spend a bit of time on the macro world, and then I'll work my way down to the individual industries within the technology world that I have interest in. So I have to keep up on, on that as well. Yeah, and I and I want to get to the macro stuff, um, but uh, I, I'm still kind of focused on this on this micro. You you mentioned um, that you'd not only look for long long side opportunities, that you're also looking for uh, short side stuff. And typically, it's it, from you know reading your stuff, it seems like you try and do that by using put options. Yes, and, and you know why why is that? Okay, um, well, you know, I've always when I was in when I was. Let me step back and say I was primarily long from 1979, almost all 100 percent long from 1979 tech to uh, the latter part of the 1990s. The last tech stocks that I owned in the late 1990s were the year 2000 software stocks because I thought they were valuable and they were going to continue to do well for a while. But then I knew that the year 2000 thing was not going to be the calamity that some people believed. So I I like to be long when I'm long. I like to be long software companies because of their high in the technology world because of their high margins, usually strong cash flows. Usually uh, they have no debt. Oh, that's changed in recent years with the corporate 
uh, with the buyback booms that we've had to try to inflate earnings per share. So I'm normally long. I want to be long. I prefer to be long tech stocks all the time. However, when we got into the bubble period in the late 1990s, um, I uh, wanted to be short, and but I didn't want to be short uh, outright because I had seen. I was fortunate enough to have uh, to have an to have uh, an education. Let's call it um, back in the mid 1990s when Windows 95 was coming out and uh, Micron Technology was was going up. Uh, it was uh, the largest DRM maker from the U.S., uh, and it was going up in leaps and bounds, and I knew it was overpriced, and I knew there was inventory building, and I knew not Windows 95 was not going to have the impact that people thought, and so I wanted to be shorted, and I was outright shorted. And I was getting my head handed to me um, so that I wasn't sleeping. <laughs> I was getting big losses, and I didn't know how either the, the maniacs were going to drive it. It went from like $20 to $100. And uh, I said, this is, this is not good. Uh, these are unlimited losses. Uh, I don't want to do this. Uh, let me try something else. And I bought leap put options. And those leap, now Micron stock, everything that I knew did come to fruition. And Micron stock did collapse. And I ended up getting all my money back but, uh, and more. But uh, it was a lesson. I don't want to short. Uh, in periods of time where credit is easy and uh, uh, and people are acting like maniacs. So in the 19, late 1990s, I never shorted a stock. Oh, I might have done one, I don't know. But, uh, but it was all through put options. And uh, that limited my losses to whatever I, I was invested in, whatever what my cost was. And, um, but it also gave me leverage if I was right. Now, it wasn't easy in 1999 because I was early and I had missed because I was not long. My last long stock I had sold in late 1998. So I was getting all kinds of grief for that. Um, but uh, uh, I had these put options and I had to continue to, uh, as they expired, <laughs> um, I had to continue to uh, um, rebuy them. And that's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it worked out really well in the end. Uh, uh, and I never had... I never had great, uh, I never was, it was, it was stressful, but it wasn't like I was uh, worried that the end was going to come. And what I did witness through that were some great short sellers who uh, could never imagine the mania as it was. It's the greatest in, uh, in probably U.S. history. Uh, and it was all concentrated in technology stocks. And they were, many of these guys with 30-year records were wiped out, taken out, closed their funds. Uh, it was really difficult. But because I used the options, uh, it limited the losses. And the other advantage I had then, too, was I had I, – because I had sold everything, um, I had money sitting in cash equivalents. But the Fed funds rate was over 6%. And I, was, I had short-term treasury bonds paying 6-plus percent so I could fund those put options with the money I was earning on the treasuries. And so the losses were really you know, pretty minimal um, in 2000 uh, – 1999 – I was doing some of that. So I was doing both long and short in 97, 98, but the emerging market crises in both years uh, led to pretty sharp drawdowns. And you probably remember those uh, in the fall and uh, where, uh, where the options paid off very well, the put options paid off very well. And I ended up doing well in both of those years. But 1999 was just like, it was, uh, it just kept going on and on and on. And there was no opportunity to make any money on put options. You just had to keep rolling, keep buying them. You know, uh, and um, and I did that. So 
So unless you had unlimited amount of money, I, I mean, I, I ended up talking, had a nice opportunity in, in right after a couple of years after, uh, off after that, I was invited down to Lyford Key at Templeton Group. Um, John Templeton, uh, got, I got to meet John Templeton, uh, and, uh, uh, and I had a half an hour conversation with him, uh, just he, myself, and actually my wife. And we talked about it because he was shorting every tech stock that was coming public in the night in 1999 into 2000. Every single one of those uh, IPOs he was shorting and he was having a very difficult time of it. But because of his obviously uh, unlimited, almost unlimited wealth, it wasn't going to finish him off. So we were we had a nice conversation describing our methodologies and what we thought and and I'll, I'll never forget him. I was asking him, how did you know it was going to end? You know, because at the time I wasn't quite sure. And he said, I just knew. I said, all my, all my, all the history, all my experience, I've seen bubbles before. He'd seen it in Japan. He said, I just knew. And uh, so he did it a different way. Uh, if you have unlimited funds, you can do it. Uh, for me, I don't, I never have had unlimited funds. So I don't short. I go through put options. Yeah, and and I think you made an interesting point there too. Uh, you know about funding it through the interest. You know on on your uh, you know cash equivalents. You know that also brings up the point that you make a you make a point in each one of your letters to say that the put options you do have represent a very small percentage of your portfolio. You know I think a lot of people want to you know play the downside. They start shorting, then they you know they have the same experience that we've all had the, the first few times we've tried to short something. Which is that unlimited losses is not a not a fun you know no, in fact, equation, but also you know that just may, if you are going to use puts you know keeping it to a, a size of your portfolio where you know you can expect that they all expire worthless and it's not going to hurt you too badly. Right, and so this time around, obviously uh, with this bubble, I did it again in two thousand and I started getting aggressive. I I was doing first on the housing stocks, the Toll Brothers, Lennar, all of those. Um, WCI, which eventually went bankrupt, um, and then I then I moved into Le- Le- uh, Goldman Sachs and, and Lehman and Bear Stearns, the financials, because I knew that I knew all about the credit crisis, um, and that was was developing, and including technology stocks. And so um, I was doing I was doing that again, but at an even smaller amount uh, percentage of the portfolio in uh, than I did in two thousand in two thousand timeframe. This time around, it's even smaller still because I can't find anything here at, at what was zero percent rates, and now it's just a little bit above that. One one point seven five Fed funds uh, doesn't provide a lot of um, a lot of uh, income for for put options. So uh, you know, I'm talking about a f- less than less than one percent most of the time here, uh, and fortunately. Um, I've been able to, as you've probably seen from the letter, I've been picking on these semiconductor companies that have been doing very poorly. Uh, so the, the ones, the memory makers, the, the Western Digitals, the Microns, the, uh, the LAM researches, those kinds of things. Uh, and so it hasn't actually had quite a few successes there this time around, but, but it's a fraction of a percent. And, and it's amazing how another bubble here, all of the, as difficult as it has been for people, I still get criticism that I'm not providing them enough short ideas, even last week. And I'm like, you know, 
I'm I'm also short. My big positions, many of which right now I said are gold, precious metals, and that's effectively short the market. And then I have these few names that are actually working in a market where shorts don't work at all. And I said, and I'm trying to keep people from losing any money, but I get pressure to give them even more names when I don't really think there are that many that's safer names. Um, because I don't know the timing of the break. So I'm trying to do the ones that have fundamentally from a technology perspective have have real flaws and you and you did mention the semiconductors a couple of times to me you know through i i like you, you said i i remember the 97 and 98 sell offs and you know through a few cycles now i it's always striking to me to see people at the top i mean it's, you know semis are as cyclical as anything if you know uh, not more so and it's always striking to me to see people um, extrapolate, you know, a few good years in the semis just out indefinitely in the future and entirely forget that these things are cyclicals and they should be cheap at the top and expensive at the bottom. Oh, I, um, I, I think I've been through, at one point I counted seven, but we might be on eight. I don't know cycles that I've been through. And what I didn't mention was when I'm one, when I'm long technology, I want to be those stocks in those stocks that have high, you know, big cash flows, uh, high gross margins. Uh, so a lot of those, a lot of times it's software companies but when i want to be short uh i go to the semiconductors because i do i've seen these cycles and i hear every time the same the same words they always say well this time it's different <laughs> and it's shit i just laugh i say well okay i've heard all this before and it's never it's never been different and i don't think it will be this time and and now i'm pretty sure that it isn't because i'm seeing all the stories build up uh pretty dramatically here and uh, we're, we're, we're in the midst of another downturn. Yeah. And you think we're already in the midst of a downturn? Yes. Because, well, you know, in the last newsletter here, I showed the inventory levels that have been building up. Um, because what, and what I spend a lot of time doing is, you know, I might be short semiconductor companies, but that's not where my work is. My work is going to be is in the places where the inventories are. So in the channels, I'll be, you know, prodding to find out what the channel inventories look like, or, in the uh, big OEMs themselves or uh, the, the uh, contract manufacturers. And so I've spent a lot of time over the years uh, in, in that. And so what I, what I see now is I see that slowdown that it's, that's occurred in the semiconductor, I mean, in, in, the, uh, in the smartphone market, which was the biggest end market. Obviously, PC market is not doing well. Tablets are poor. Some of the markets they thought they were going to be uh, growth drivers like drones and that uh, and virtual reality have failed. Well, they haven't failed completely, but they're doing very poorly. And you know there are still some other areas like cloud and um, um, you know, autos were and industrial that were still holding up. And I say were because now we're seeing auto end markets, so I have to track those as well. Auto end markets uh, starting to roll over. Uh, we hit a peak here in the U.S. Uh, 18 million annual rate of car sales. And we're in the 60, high 16s now. And, um, and the biggest market in the world, uh, China, the biggest auto par market in the world, China, they, they are actually seeing year-over-year, -year, substantial year-over-year -year declines in auto sales. And we're, I think the last month was 5.5% year-over-year, and it's been a consistent decline all year now. Uh, so China and Europe's auto sales are weakening as well. And so, so uh, all of these end markets have started to to drop not all of them cloud's still holding up um but 
Many of the end markets have started rolling over for a variety of reasons. The global economy is weakening. Uh, you know, obviously, we're um, U.S. stock market has done well, and the U.S. economy looks good. We can get into that a bit, but uh, but the rest of the market is not looking so well. Most of the world markets are down. Emerging markets are in an actual bear market. China is in a bear market. Those economies are all slowing down, and a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but um, it's ending up with uh, build up in inventory, semiconductor industry inventory. So you're looking at uh, $6 billion nearly of Apple inventory, which is up 8% year over year, yet their unit sales growth was 0.7%. Uh, that's that 0.7% in what was supposed to be their super cycle for their 10th anniversary uh, iPhone 10X. And in, in the second full quarter, uh, which is supposed to be prime time for sales, and they only got seven, seven, seven hundred basis points there of a a, a point seven, um, a, a fraction of one of a gain, and those unit sales were actually uh, well down from where they were three years ago. I think it was thirteen percent down from where they were even three years ago. Uh, their max sales were down twenty two percent from three years ago. So inventory is a big problem at Apple and all its suppliers. So Han High, which gets a lot of attention, their inventories are up 60% as well. And yet their sales are not, are not growing very much. And Picron, which is another Apple supplier, their, sale, their inventories are up 30% with very little growth. And, and then others, Samsung's, uh, Samsung, uh, Samsung's, Samsung's sales last quarter were down over 10% year over year, and that led to – like a, I think it was a 30% jump in Im their inventories with a 10% year-over-year decline in sales. And uh, Samsung suppliers and then the PC guys, the, the leading PC guys all have excess inventories. And oftentimes their rates of, the rates of growth of inventories are twice what their sales growth are, and that, that includes Hewlett-Packard and Lenovo. So everywhere we're seeing these inventories build up, and it's the biggest buildup since 2008. And there was also, of course, a big buildup in 2000. Uh, so, the, so, and that's one of the reasons why semiconductors are uh, considered to be the leading indicator of the economy. Is you will see this start to happen uh, in advance uh, before productions cut. Uh, inventories will build up. Sales will start to slow a bit, and inventories will build up. Uh, so, if the auto market is starting to slow, then you start to see it. You start to see these impact, and so semiconductors can tell you a lot. I like semiconductors because of their volatility. They will soar and they will plunge, and that's very good if you're going to be an option, a put option guy. Uh, but I also like like it because it tells me so much about what's going to come in the future. And you know, this is probably a perfect segue into you know, kind of the, getting into some of the macro stuff. I mean, you know, that that's really the intersection there that you were talking about between you know paying attention to macro trends and then how they affect your micro kind of investment opportunities. But you know. You mentioned uh, a couple times already these kind of rolling asset bubbles that we've you know, been forced to go through over the past couple of decades. Uh, I guess at what point was it that you really realized, okay, I, I really need to start paying more attention to the Fed and uh, you know what's going on, uh, on at a central bank level uh, because it, it absolutely affects my micro process. Yes. Well, it was a gradual epiphany, <laughs> but – uh, so I never – I'm considered to be somewhat of a gold bug these days, not that I want to be, but um, I, I haven't been given a choice in my, in my opinion because of the insanity of the central banks. So I never even owned an ounce of gold until 1998, and I started buying a little bit then, just gold. 
Um, and it wasn't until the crash of 2000, the 2000 tech crash. And I said to myself at that time, I said, this is a major crash. This is a secular, this is a secular end to this bull, big bull market that had gone from 1980 on uh, into 2000. And I said, I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to have the opportunities long, uh, the technology names over this next decade, likely as I would in the last dec- two decades. And so I said, now I did end up buying, um, I had got out of all my puts by, uh, by October, 2002, which is right about the bottom. And, uh, I started going along a bunch of those software names, so a bunch of different names. I had a whole bunch of them, several of which got bought out. They were very low, very cheap at that time. Value guy loved it. Uh, but by then I'd said, to be in a tech stocks are going to be in a secular bear market but this gold thing over here has been in a 20-year bear market and it's likely going to be in a bull market and so um i watched the watched the market start to turn uh at the bottom for gold at two at 250 i was buying some gold at that point in time um, but then I said, you know, I, I don't trust these central banks because they're always bailing out, uh, bailing out uh, the financial system. Uh, they, you know, when we had the Mexican crisis in 1995, I'd witnessed that. When we had had the the, the Brazilian crisis and the Russian crisis and the, Thai, the Asian crisis, Thailand, and we had long-term capital, and we were the Fed was constantly coming in uh, aggressively bailing things out, either by lowering interest rates or whatever they could do. Um, and, uh, I said, this is not going to end well because you can't keep doing this. And in 2000, they drop rates all the way down to an historical low, a tide of 1%. Uh, guys were panicking and I knew that would lead to malinvestment and all kinds of problems. And I said, I think this gold market's going to do well. And so I started really getting involved And in, by 2002, that's when I started buying the mining stocks heavily. So I was lucky not and I made them my biggest positions. I was lucky to to not have uh, not have uh, had the had the experience of the bear market, a twenty year bear market. But I got the experience of the tw- of of that big bull market where there were then twelve consecutive years of up years for gold, and uh, uh, and gold went up six hundred fifty percent from the bottom, and the miners went up one thousand six hundred percent on average, and just to uh, put it in a different way, that's 17 times on average the mining, mining stocks went up over that period uh, until the top occurred in uh, September of 2011. But even then, 2011 wasn't up here. Um, so uh, I was fortunate to have uh, have gotten that. Um, and uh, uh, so anyways, I... At that time in 2002, I actually wrote to my subscribers and I said that I have to protect myself from the insanity of these central bankers. And to do so, the best way to do that, I believe, from you know everything I've learned over time, is precious metals. And it could lead to inflation. It could lead to very high inflation if they keep doing this um, and other problems. And so I, I did that, and uh, I've been I've been involved in the precious metals ever since. So. Uh, both in tech now and in the precious metals. And I don't want to be in precious metals. I understand that a gold bar 
never changes its value. It only changes it's a it's a piece of gold that sits there. Now it has qualities that are attractive: uh, portability, durability, store of value, you name it. It has all of these things, but it just sits there. It doesn't grow, unlike these tech companies that I might have had success with. It doesn't grow in time. However, it is a store of value. And when central banks are debasing, uh, as they were doing then, um, then uh, you know I needed to protect the money I've been making. And what I, what I never imagined, I could never have imagined that that it would have ended up morphing into another bust uh, in 2005 for the housing, and then the credit bubble in 2007-8, that it would then cause the Fed to drop rates to 0%, and in Europe and Japan to negative rates, to see $10 trillion of bonds selling uh, at negative interest rates, which had never occurred in the 5,000 years of financial history, that they would have printed $15 trillion of money. Uh, I, I, when I was getting, getting involved in, in putting a big chunk of my portfolio into the precious metal stocks and into the metals, I could never imagine that. That's beyond imagination. And, uh, but they did. And as a result of that, I have been, I continue to stay involved. And uh, here, we're, here we are now where um, uh, I know that money printing doesn't work. Um, they've tried, that's been tried for thousands of years. Uh, it never works. Um, unfortunately, right now, the central bankers believe that it does. They think it's, they've had a great success because they pulled us out of that 2009 recession and the financial crisis uh, uh, by, doing, by buying assets and inflating them. Um, and they, they think that they've created wealth. Um, certainly the U.S. Uh, US average, not the average, but the U.S. Americans' wealth has gone from $54 trillion low in 2009 to over $100 trillion today. Now, that's inflation. Uh, but it's also created a, another bubble, a third bubble here. We had a 2000 bubble. We had a, we had a 2000, that mid-2000s bubble, and here we are again. And unfortunately, I, they've learned no lessons. And I, I, I believe that when this recession occurs, and we haven't outlawed recessions, um, uh, when the recession, coming recession occurs, they'll be printing money at an even more rapid rate than they did before, because that's what you have to do. And one of the problems is they, they've been in getting out of this, this, uh, this crisis in 2009 is they've encouraged uh, and they tried to solve a debt crisis with more debt. So, you know, 45% increase in, in the world's debt levels uh, since the 2009 crisis. And so we have all of these debts. Uh, we have uh, massive debts in emerging markets, all these governments uh, who love to promise things to people, um, were, were able to borrow because the interest rates were so low from these uh, from the U.S. and elsewhere, and uh, and encouraged them to take on massive debts, not to do anything about their structural financial troubles. Uh, and now we have this uh, emerging market crisis that's starting to um, um, try, starting to accelerate, where we have uh, twenty different currencies around the world, and some of them are very major currencies uh, that are down double digits against the dollar, and that's causing all kinds of trouble, and they're having to raise interest rates. In Argentina's case, they had to raise them 15 basis points just a month, a few weeks ago, and to 60%, and it still didn't stop the decline of the, of the, of the peso, I believe it is. And um, 
Uh, so things are unraveling here as, as they do because the money printing doesn't work. Um, it causes all kinds of imbalances. Uh, one of the things I was focused on in 2000 in the imbalances that were created there where they weren't printing money, but they had lowered rates to very low levels, uh, uh, was uh, all of the malinvestment that was created in the technology world. And I knew about and I wrote about well in advance about the fiber optic capacity that was insane, uh, where they weren't using but a small fraction of it. Um, the, what was called the Internet hosting, which is very similar to cloud capacity today, massive Internet hosting. And I saw all these imbalances. Um, you know, interest rates are, are the price of money. And if the money is if it's priced wrongly. People are going to make bad decisions, and they make really bad decisions in these with zero percent rates and one percent rates. So I saw all of that um, as they do today. Um, we see all the two hundred and fifty plus unicorns at value at uh, multi billion dollar valuations that make no money, but lose tremendous amounts of cash, burn cash every quarter. Uh, I see, you can see them. It was the, I wrote about this last last month, and I said it was more difficult to see the malinvestment that occurred in the technology world in 2000 because internet hosting is invisible to everyone. Um, the fiber optic capacity in the ground and over in, under cables and through over the ocean floors are not so visible. But this time around, because uh, the bubble is the everything bubble, I knew you were involved in coining that. Um, because it's an everything bubble uh, and it's so much broader than technology, you can see the malinvestment. Every day, people can see it. You can, go, you can go to Boston or New York and see all the construction cranes that are out there, more than I've seen in a long, long time. And I know that, and I know that a lot of that is, uh, is uh, commercial le le uh, leasing being done by money-losing unicorns like WeWork and the like. Um, and I know that uh, the green bicycles that are all over my little town of National New Hampshire of 85,000 um, that are just being littered around here are are from companies who uh, have been able to get funding and uh, lose money. All of these, uh, you know, uh, bike firms, and then there's the scooter firms, and then there's the meal, the 120 meal kit companies that all lose money. And so you can see all of this, this malinvestment. If you look in, in the mid 2000s, when I knew there was a housing bubble, I knew because I was driving around the country parks and around here, and I could see the houses that weren't selling, that were building up. Sometimes you can see the malinvestment. In 2000, it was more difficult. But what always happens is in money printing environments is malinvestment. And so we have it. We have it in spades this time. And it's going to be uh, a gigantic uh, recession that's going to occur as a result of this. And I know the Fed's reaction and other central banks around the world will be to debase. And one of the reasons why they have to do that is they've allowed the debts to build up so greatly. And there's almost no way out. Um, you know, I remember many, many years ago, over a decade ago, Maybe two, where people were were worrying about the uh, entitlements problem in this country, and now it's 115 trillion dollars estimated. Um, we have a we have 21.5 trillion dollars in that's more than double, more than double what where, where, where we were at the uh, in the, in 2008. Uh, these these debts can't be paid off. These promises can't be paid, and the only thing, the only way I could see uh, out of this for these politicians is to debase. And as a result of that, I'm forced to stay in this precious metals market. I would be the happiest uh, guy in the world if, uh, if, if we were back to uh, a normal uh, economic world and I didn't have to own gold or the precious miners at all, precious metal miners, and strictly be dealing with tech. 
Well, and, and you mentioned that, you know, yeah, that, that's the, the bulk case uh, for gold. It, I, I don't think it's difficult to understand. And, and, and I agree with you. It's not something, hey, I, I just, I love gold, like, uh, you know, gold member or somebody who has like, you know, passion for it just for, for whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, it's no, this is really the most efficient way to try and protect myself from, from what's going on on a macro scale. Uh, but you, but your preferred way, it seems like to play the gold trade is through the miners. What, what specifically do you look for in uh, a good mining stock? So uh, yes, so I so I, I've learned this over time too because now I've been involved in this since 2002, so I have uh, 16 years of experience. Um, one of the one of the top criteria for me, if not the top one, is where is the mine or mines located? Because we're constantly seeing um, uh, difficulties for companies whose uh, mines, no matter how prolific they may be in grades. Um, where are they located? Because, uh, for example, uh, B2 Gold has a mine in, uh, in uh, well, I should say Tahoe, but both of them. Tahoe has a mine uh, in Guatemala that's shut down. Uh, and they just received a bad ruling of it here this week. And um, we see uh, in places like Mali where there is Islamic troubles that uh, – um, those mines have, have difficulties. Indonesia has been trying to uh, grab parts of uh, pieces of these companies that own mines there, including, and they've been successful. I mean, Newmont left, and then uh, Freeport McMahon has uh, had to give up quite a bit of the ownership of the giant Grassborg mine. Uh, so all over these places, um, uh, where are you located? I, I wouldn't want to own mines in Russia. I don't want to own mines in South Africa, where the labor unions are constantly demanding more and more money, despite the loss that the companies, uh, the miners, uh, mining companies are uh, are experiencing. So, um, where is it located? I want to be in safe locations, and there aren't that many. So, but the United States, where is rule of law uh, going appreciated? Um, uh, where, where will governments likely not try to get their get their pieces of it, um, pieces of the pie? And so, those are places like Canada and Australia and the U.S. Uh, parts of South America, uh, you know, if there are mines in Europe, like Finland, uh, Agnico Eagle has a mine in Finland that's very good. Uh, so that I start there, uh, and then I'm looking for. I usually like to have because I'm I don't I'm a tech guy, not a gold person. I'm not an analyst that's going to the mines uh, and and down into the shafts and looking to find visible gold and looking at the the various streams or that kind of thing. Uh, of it, so I'm not going to be uh, very often involved in development mines, uh, junior miners as they call them, because I, I have no no edge there. Um, so so I try to get my, I try to own miners that are um, that have uh, producing mines, um, producing mines in locations that are good, and hopefully more than one, um, because I've seen in many cases you might. It's a difficult business. You can have earthquakes. There can be all sorts of things that can occur. If you have a single mine, it can be pretty devastating. So uh, what I want to do is participate in that, these big, huge moves that you can get, like we did in, two, in the 2000s time frame. Um, and, uh, um, and I did again in the 2015 out of that bottom, 2016, when once again in a six-month period, gold went up 30%, but the miners went 160 percent 
So there's huge leverage on their bottom lines uh, to the prices of the metals themselves. And uh, it means that you get hit hard uh, on declines in the metals, but you also can make a lot of money. And uh, I, I like to have mines that have other criteria are hopefully a low cost mines. And that often means higher grade mines. So uh, one of my favorites over the past year was Kirkland Lake, which was the most successful stock. I was lucky to have that one. Had some clunkers too. But lucky to have the best performing one because their grades of their two flagship mines are are outstanding at near 20 grams per ton, and that means low 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 cost to produce, and that means high margins and high margins and cash flow even when the when the gold price is in a decline as it is right now. So uh, I also like, obviously, I like management's been around a long time uh, that don't um, reward themselves more than their shareholders. Uh, and Agnico has been around, for example, Agnico Eagle for 60 years and paying dividend, the whole, I think, almost that whole time. And, and they take a long-term approach. I like that management. I think it's, it's not the best, one of the best in the business. So I like managements. So it's all of these factors um, that uh, I take into consideration. Yeah, and and you know one thing that I really noticed and uh, admired in your reading, and it's probably obvious to everybody now listening to this, with your contrarian views on you know technology and on precious metals, is you have a fiercely uh, independent voice and in, in your your ability to or your willingness to trust your own research and instincts uh, against the crowd is is in my view admirable. What where does where do you think that comes from? Okay, I, I think it comes from my. Basic human nature. I'm a contrarian by nature. <laughs> I think all of the people that I that I know that are able to do well in uh, in the short side of things, uh, they're a little different. I'm not your. You know, I, I see the world a little differently. I'm not, I don't get caught up in crowds. I'm not a follower. Never have been a follower. I as a hedge fund friend of mine, he talked about being kindergarten and. and he got in trouble because he was the only kid that refused to act to, to in the play to be a chicken and squawk. And he just wouldn't do it. Well, he's a short seller. Um, I, I think it's in my basic nature. Um, I also have uh, been, I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to people who have, uh, uh, who have also don't follow the crowd, uh, you know, to be exposed by to a John Templeton and to understand what he's tried to do. Um, to look and watch, you know, I, what I consider to be the great investors of the world, uh, you know, the Seth Klarmans of the world, take their value approach out of the mainstream. You know, Sam Zell in the real estate world will tell you you have to go in the other direction to be successful. Um, so, you know, I, I believe buying low and selling high is the key. However, that sounds great. It is the most difficult thing to do. And you better have very strong convictions uh, and you better have uh, you better do a lot of work so that you can continue to uh, because you're going to be under tremendous stress from the herd, particularly at manic moments. And uh, they're going to go out of their way to uh, to denigrate you, to embarrass you, to they want to make sure everyone is a bull. And uh, all sorts of pressure on the markets to, to on market participants to be part of the crowd. And uh, so one of the benefits of being here in New Hampshire, and even in this mania, I think I found that it's been too difficult even to be here. I'm still too close to New York and <laughs> is to also have a place in Costa Rica where I can get away. Uh, and uh, I do. Um, and I don't my wife doesn't allow me to take phone calls there. So I can only deal with emails when I'm down there. 
um, you you have to be you you have to be willing to walk alone. You know, uh, you and I are similar, I think, and in, in, in nature as well. Um, you know, we're we're preaching to a very small choir right now. It's uh, like more like a barbershop quartet out there, and uh, you have to be willing also to. It's a very difficult road if you're fund manager. I'm lucky enough not to be one uh, by choice because I've been offered all kinds of t- opportunities to take other people's money and manage it. But I didn't want to do it because I had a good thing going. And um, uh, I think people appreciate the fact that I am an independent voice, I'm not part of the Wall Street crowd. I am, I am in fact, located in New Hampshire away from the herd, um, that I can look at things hopefully uh, less emotionally because they're under tremendous pressure. Uh, we know what happens in every bull market. Uh, the, the people come in at the top. Uh, they all want to buy at the top. No one wants to buy at the bottom. They're under tremendous pressure to buy things when they're most expensive. And they're in tre- tremendous pressure to sell when it's, they're the least expensive. And uh, you get fired if you don't, uh, if you don't perform. And, and with pension consultants and all of these people that are out there uh, evaluating your performance, uh, it's uh, awfully difficult to uh, you, you also have to have uh, unlimited amounts of money and to have a reputation like a Seth Klarman or John Templeton or those kinds of people to be even to be able to withstand it and not get fired. Uh, it, it, so it sounds great to buy low, sell high. To, win, to actually implement that strategy is uh, very difficult. When people are calling you on the phone and leaving messages, how stupid you are, and you know, I missed out on this great opportunity as I did in the 1999 timeframe, I guess. I didn't really miss it, I knew. Um, and uh, they're calling up and singing songs to you because they're so arrogant and it tops, it breeds arrogance and brazenness and uh, it, it's, I can't tell you how difficult it is. Now, the, the, the best part for me now, since I've been doing this for 40 years, is that I have been through these periods before. In 2000, I had never seen anything like that, and I didn't know if it was ever going to end. Uh, neither of these short sellers were getting wiped out. And I hadn't seen anything like that. I'd seen bear markets, but I'd never seen anything as crazy as this. And I survived that, and I uh, and I succeeded through that period, and then I made it through the housing crash, and I succeeded with that, and the financials, and then the tech again in 2008, and I was buying in both cases. I did buy uh, in 2002, October 2002, as I told you, a bunch of tech stocks names, and I did it again in October 2008. Uh, I bought an, uh, a number of tech stock names. Now the criticism of for me is is that well I didn't stay that long. I mean I only stay I only stood in those for in two, after two thousand eight for a few years and the last one was for Microsoft for after four years because I saw a bubble again and I thought that uh, I was better off in the precious metals and I was when we go back to two thousands that decade it was the great bull market for gold but it was also the worst decade for stocks overall in one hundred and ten years so it was the right thing to do even though I was in the tech world, but I was getting all kinds of pressure and I continue to do that to be long. So uh, to be long when I don't think the valuations are there. And at this point, they're, in, they're insane. Uh, when you have um, a group showing a median price to sales ratio, that's two times greater than 2000, that insane moment. And, and they say that it's a scary chart in their chart group 
And they tell people it's not fit for family eyes. You know, it's not a fa- or family friendly publications. Uh, and there are other uh, indicators that are showing this is also, uh, if not the greatest bubble, certainly one of the broadest bubbles, but if not the greatest bubble, um, it, one of the top three and the other two landed in crashes. So uh, it's really hard to do to be a contrarian and it better be in nature to be so. And it is. And you, 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 you know, it's, it's, awesome to hear your thoughts and, and experiences through all that stuff to me you know to think about the fact that you've also been writing through all of this i mean i i read your your letter every month and it's just every month is so detailed and so in-depth and i think god this guy's been doing this for 30 years you know it's what every month yeah every it's, month it's huge and uh and the only way i can do it, i can tell you how that works because sometimes you know mentally very difficult right <laughs> uh you know particularly in tough tough times uh, better times is easier, but each month and, you know, it's month to month. I think every month I go at least at one point in time where I say, I quit. I can't do this anymore yeah. every month, but I've been doing it so long. I have a process. It's a process where I accumulate all this information at the end of the month. So I go through the whole month, accumulating all this information from all these sources that we've talked about. I, I and I put them in the, my computer notes uh and i do it by category but at the end of that i will have several hundred pages of notes and of all the stuff that's been going on you forget what happened in the first week of the month and, and little things and details and then i and then i go through all of those notes and it takes me two days just to go through those notes and to organize them and to think about them and to come up with themes and I, and, and usually i'll come up with i'll have a different opinion of what's going on in the world after going, going through that process than I did when I started it. And that's one of the main reasons I keep doing this newsletter, because I've always found it to be uh, a great exercise to get mental clarity. And, and as a, at the end of that process, I will always be fired up about something. And then I will, then I will be able to write. And I also then I never quit because I tell myself, I trust this process and um, I trust this process. And I know at the end, it will work. It will work, and it does. Interestingly enough, I I, had, I ran into Gary Schilling, and uh, he writes a monthly. Obviously, he's done it for longer than I have. Uh, more on economics, and we were he we were at this we were at this conference, um, uh, and he asked me if I if I had a Wall Street Journal. This is a couple of a few years ago, and I said, "Yeah, I can't give it to you. It's all cut up." Because then, of course, I didn't have it all on computer. Right? I didn't have all in the, everything on my computer notes. I had I used to have clippings of things as well as on the computer. And I said, I, I can't give it to you. It's got it full of holes. And he said, what do you mean full of holes? He, he said, well, I, I clip all this stuff out and I, I, I describe my process. And at the end of the day, end of the month, I will have piles all through my office. So you can't see anything. You can't see a desk. You can't see my floor. It's on tables. And he said, oh, my God, we do exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly the same thing so he was looking to get clippings as well and he was going through the same mental process that i was even though we were doing we never had talked to each other prior to that well yeah and it's fascinating for me to hear that you you know that that what you take away from the writing process the the discipline of it of you know forcing yourself to go through all these things every month in the way that you do and then to try and distill these things down into separate themes you know just that process of writing i imagine is is very helpful and then you know being able to do that 
uh, over, you know, through as many cycles as you've been doing it for is even, even more valuable. Yeah. I mean, obviously the experience and that, that was, gets down to Templeton. I just knew he just knew because of the experiences he had been through the decade that he had and all of the crises and the, and the bear markets and bull markets. And he had seen all of that. So, uh, you know, you, that experiences can't be undervalued. Yeah. And, you know, you, uh, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned Costa Rica and, and, uh, I was fortunate to get down there and took my family down a, a few months ago. And, uh, I was thinking, Oh, I get it. I get it. Now my friend wants to come down here. And I was going to ask you, is that, was that a, like a conscious choice to, to get some, a different perspective and get away from, you know, these other influences or, or is it more just about uh, nice weather and, um, even nicer people? Well, it's certainly nice weather and the happiest people, so they call the happiest people on the planet. And they are, I think, uh, from what I can see. We'd, my wife and I had been looking around. We'd been to various vacation spots all over the place. She wanted to be somewhere warm. We had a checklist of 10 items. We went down there the first time. I said, boy, this looks, it's prox- proximity, to, uh, easy access. I have direct flights from Boston. I mean, Boston for me is at night is only 40 minutes away. And, and so we have direct flights down there in the high season. Uh, five-hour flights, uh, easy access, back and forth, uh, you know, no culture shock, really. Uh, you know, the people, the weather, where we are in a microclimate, within this, like, 30 microclimates, and much of it's tropical, but where we are in the high season, it rains. So there's no humidity, no bugs, no, no mosquitoes. Um, it's blue, blue sky and sunshine throughout November through April, when we might be there. Uh, and... Uh, uh, coming from New England, after all the years I've had to put put up with that, uh, that's a, that's a great thing. Now, that's not, what the fine. You'll be interested to know what the final decision was. So we had, we were exposed. We were looking around, but in January of 2012, obviously a, a quarterly earnings period, a year end period, which is one of the busiest for me in those conference calls. I also at the time was still on the Barons Roundtable. And, and all of the requirements that they had. And I was going to New York and, you know, in the middle of winter and cold and snow and ice. And I was also coaching kids basketball at the time. I'd been doing that for over a decade, even while my kids were gone. And I was running ragged and I got sick. And I, I've written all these newsletters and I had never missed a month. But in that one, I ended up getting the flu and my, I, I went nine days in that process to try to write that letter where I had spike fevers to like 104 every afternoon. And it eventually led to, I didn't know it. I finally said, I can't go finish this letter to my wife. And she'd been trying to get me to go to the doctor the whole time. And I refused. And I finally said, I got to go, I guess. And they diagnosed me as having pneumonia in each lung, both lungs. And then, and then, and then uh, what happened was, was that I, two days later, I couldn't take two steps. Had I had I been had I not been able to even breathe two days later, I mean two days before, they would have admitted me. But thankfully they didn't, and uh, I got on some meds and everything. But at that point in time, I said, "Let's go back." We were supposed to go back to Costa Rica, and I was trying to get to the headline in my newsletter. So two days later, we were going to be able to go to Costa Rica. We couldn't do it. We had to cancel the flight, but we went back as soon as I got well. And that trip. We purchased the. We purchased. We looked at some houses and we purchased the house, and it hasn't been a, a, a regretful moment since. 
Well, it's it's a, a wonderful place, and I we had a, an amazing time as a family um, going down there. I could see why you you enjoyed it so much. We didn't actually want to come back. I had to negotiate with the family to get them on the airplane to come up. I have a house there, and I hate going back. I'm sad every time I leave. <laughs> I know I'm going back. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, well, Fred, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your wisdom with us. This has been uh, really uh, fantastic, and uh, I'm really grateful to you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Looking good, Billy Ray. Feeling good, Lewis. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.